You are listening to a podcast from The National. Welcome to the National's Business Extra podcast from our newsroom in Abu Dhabi. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief. Weekly, we provide insight and additional analysis on the biggest business, economic and finance stories affecting us here, as well as the wider region and the world. In Tuesday's The National, Alice Hain has written about the remarkable story of a Canadian expat who sued three UAE banks over unfair credit card charges and won. To tell us more about what this means in terms of the overall problem of rising consumer debt in the country is our personal finance editor, Alice Hain. Alice, why did this woman come to us to tell her story? She came to us because she wanted to offer hope to readers. Um, She was reading the debt panel every week and she noticed that uh, a lot of people writing with similar problems and they were all going round in circles. You know, the debt panel is a weekly column where we have a a selection of panellists who offer people in chronic debt um, solutions to their issues. And she noticed that the same kind of answers were being offered and that there was limited options as to how people could get resolution. So she wanted to give them hope and say, look, you know, if you're in so much debt and you've got this credit card and it's escalating out of control and you just you're looking at the charges and you're thinking there's something very wrong with this. And bear in mind, it's not just credit cards that this applies to. There are some loans in the market that have interest rates of over 40 percent. And so those kind of charges are unfair. And she just felt, in her case, that her situation was unfair. And that's why eventually when she was in so much debt, you know, her, her debt got up to the level of 700,000 dirhams. And when she was at that point, she just she was desperate and she turned to a banker and just said, what do I do? And he said, take the credit card providers to court. Take them to court. This is, this is not fair. This is out of control. And so she wanted to show the readers that there was another way and that she wanted to give them some kind of hope and that you can appeal. And possibly, if you're lucky, the judge may rule in your favor. So she had her own debts. She had debts of 700,000 dirhams that she was struggling with. She was trying to negotiate with the banks over these debts. And in the end, the only solution open to her, because it was such a large amount of money compared to her income, was to take the banks to court. Now, you said she was lucky enough, but you know, I guess luck does play its part in the legal system, but also there has to be a basis for this. So, you know, what exactly was the basis for taking these banks to court? So what it was that she got to this point where one of the cards she was making, she, she got to a point where she was in so much debt that she um, stopped using the cards. She just said, enough, I can't use them anymore. The situation is out of control. And she, at every stage, she admits, look, I spent the money. I spent the money. You know, it's, it's my fault. Um, but she got to the point where one of the cards, the amount was still going up, even though she was meeting the minimum balance requirement every month. And she just thought, there's something not right about this. So when she approached the banker and he said, you should take them to court, um, what happens when you go to court is that the bank appoints uh, an expert to not to represent you, but to decide the case effectively. And they are the kind of neutral ground. And so they take her statements. This is Abu Dhabi Commercial Court. Abu Dhabi Commercial Court. And they analysed the statements. And in there, they they could see that interest was being applied on interest, that there were unfair charges and fees and that the fees and charges were too high. And one of them was uh, the credit insurance that's applied on um, credit card statements. And that's there to kind of provide you with insurance should you lose your job or 
die or something happens. But in her case, some of them were exceptionally high. And so they ruled that these charges were completely unfair and unjustified. And that's why the debt was escalating out of control. And the debt was wiped. On these the debt cards. was wiped. So there were three cases uh, were filed against three different banks. So one of them was Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank, uh, which she had two credit cards with. The second one was First Abu Dhabi Bank. Uh, back actually when she took out the credit card, it was First Gulf Bank. And the third credit card was with Dubai First. And the um, Dubai First case, she actually settled out of court. So the 70,000 dirham debt was reduced to 40,000 and she got friends to rally around and help her pay And that it. was because they were going to put her in jail, yes. right? Well, she, yes, they were going to put her in jail and she did end up in jail for two for two nights but then was was released once the negotiation had happened. Um, and the So she didn't have a chance to take that one to court. That one kind of came to a head early. No, she had she card. she was already in the court process against them. Okay. But um just to give you some background, she actually had a car accident and ended up in hospital. And when you have a car accident, the police become involved and they came along and said, look, we've actually got this case lodged against you. There's a check that's uh, lodged against you because you have debts that you haven't paid back. And so we're going to have to put you in jail. And so she then obviously got a lawyer involved and tried to appeal uh, directly with the bank. And so th- there was also um, a payment of 5,000 dirham. The the uh, clerk from the from Dubai first said to her, look, if you want to speed this up uh, and you give me 5,000 dirhams, I can speed it up. Um, and she paid that. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't speed it up and she ended up in jail. So that case, she had filed the case in court, but that was settled out of court. The other two cases uh, against Abu Dhabi Commercial Bank and against um, First Abu Dhabi Bank, uh, the debt was wiped, but they both had to make a payment uh, to her. So she actually was paid um, a lump sum of money. Um, so And this uh, was in lieu of the charges and yeah, the interest and yeah, everything that they had yeah. overcharged her. Yeah. And so uh, the final case was settled um, in May this year. And, and at that point, the credit card debt was gone. So it's remarkable that this happened because, uh, you know, as you said, in our debt panel series and in other coverage, we see that often um, there's no way out for people who have got past a certain threshold. Uh, For this lady, she was smart enough, brave enough, lucky enough, whatever you want to say, to find another route. But if we go back to a point that you raised, which was she spent the money. And this is really the key here, because the problem of, of, of rampant consumer debt is one that's widespread, and it's it's affecting a lot of people. This is a common story, the situation she found herself in, not necessarily the solution that she she discovered, but being in that situation where she had overspent and, and had too much debt. And this applies to thousands of people. It does. And, uh, you know, I spoke to somebody off the record recently and I just said, you know, can you give me a figure of of how many people are at this kind of level of chronic debt? And he said to me that it's 10 percent. He said 10 percent of the UAE population are in chronic debt and he calls them fish in a bucket. These are people who are literally swimming around in a pool of water in a bucket with nowhere to go. They are so loaded up with debt that they can't take on any more debt because under central bank rules now 50% of your income if if more than 50% of your income is going towards debt repayments then you cannot take on any more credit so they can't appeal to any more financial institutions for credit and they've probably exhausted their friends and family and any assets they've got so they've literally unless they get a higher paying job or uh, take on a side job, they've just got nowhere to go. And so they're swimming in circles. But I think it's actually more than that. I mean, 
is the kind of chronic debt uh, figure. But I think there's a higher percentage that, that than that are that are already in quite serious trouble. And, and we've talked about this before in the national. We say that they are in the red zone, that they're kind of in that danger area where they have one credit card, possibly two. They've already maxed out. Possibly they're at the stage they've got a consolidation loan. But still, they're maxing out the credit cards, even though they, they took the loan out to, to pay off the cards. And that's something that Susan, um, our case study in the story, talked a lot about. She said, I got the first consolidation loan. Then I got the second one. And I said to her, well, why didn't you cut up your cards? And she said, I don't know. I don't know. I, I look back and I'm mystified. I don't know why I didn't cut them up. And she says, once you get to the first consolidation loan, you're already in too much trouble. And she said, at that point, you've just got to pour a bucket of water over your head and just recalibrate. But but also, it, it, I mean, in her story, she talks about how she had expenses to pay. She had to pay for family outside the country, which is a common story as well. So some of that income isn't necessarily going for living expenses. So you want to live. Uh, it can be expensive uh, in the UAE day to day. And then you have to send money abroad as well. So at some point, um, especially the last few years, there necessarily hasn't been a lot of pay rises going on or a lot of wealth creation, given the overall global economic climate. So it's been hard for a lot of people. And that perhaps has been one of the reasons why there have been so many cases like Susan's. Uh, yes, I mean, it, it, it's the same story. Uh, and we see it in the debt panel every week. It's people supporting their families or their extended families overseas. You know, some people here are responsible to, you know, upwards of 10 people or more. They are literally supporting a, a small community in another country. Susan's story was she was supporting her son. Um, he uh, has mental health issues and she, he was, you know, trying to help him through that as well as financing his university education. On top of that, she said, you know, I went for dinner or I, I, I took some trips. He said, I wasn't doing anything crazy uh, but I was living beyond my means and it once it started and it started to escalate I couldn't sort of stay on top of it I couldn't keep keep the situation under control and her big takeaway from this whole experience is not to live beyond your means that's really the the issue isn't it that too many of us are living beyond our means it really is that simple and it really is a case of looking at your finances and thinking okay this is what I earn this is what my expenses are, my rent, my car, my grocery bills, uh, children's education, all the things that we need to keep life ticking over. And then if that second, so you total those up, those expenses up, and if that's more than what you're earning, it's that simple, then you're living beyond your means. So really, it's, it's about looking at how much you earn and really budgeting and really thinking very carefully about how you're going to spend that money, how you're going to allocate that income and how you're going to live so that not only are you living here, but you're also saving so that you have a backup plan should anything go wrong. And where is Susan now? She's back in Canada. Um, she flew back last week. She um, basically, after she completed the credit card debt, she still had the consolidation loan to pay off. She paid the made the final payment before she left. She used her gratuity payment. She received two hundred and nine thousand dirhams, and she paid uh, most of that onto the uh, debt. She's left with ninety thousand. She's gone home with that. She's very happy to be back in Canada. She doesn't regret her time in the UAE. She says she's stronger for it. She's learnt some incredibly valuable lessons. Uh, she loved the UAE. She was very happy here, and she's very sad that she got into the situation that she did. Alice Hain, The National's personal finance editor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you very much.
big story that our business editor Masood Darhali has been covering is how Emirates and Fly Dubai will work closer together to beat the headwinds in the aviation industry. Masood spoke to Emirates President Sir Tim Clark, who said that there has been a paradigm shift in demand that is forcing all airlines to reassess how they operate. There is almost a paradigm change in the way uh, demand patterns are shifting in the in the region and uh, and internationally. There's a lot going on, and we've got to keep a wary eye on how these manifest themselves in demand for air travel. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a very strong summer, um, uh, but we have to look and see. It's very difficult for anybody, and I mean anybody, whether you be an investment banker, an economist, the governor of the Bank of England, to be able to say what is going to happen to the global economy, regional country economies in the next three to five years, is mm-hmm. anybody's guess. And when you look at the likes of Norwegian and others, Scoots, etc., coming to market with long-haul low-cost, picking off second and third-level city-paired combinations in various parts of the world, that is also changing our international travel. Mm-hmm. So you've got, to, you've got to keep an eye on this and look at the way things are moving. I, I think it's all for the, for the best. Mm-hmm. And I think it's going to be wonderful for consumers because the choice is going to increase, the price is going to fall, albeit you won't have the luxury of a full-service airline, but if you're prepared to put up with it, you'll get from A to B over long haul in, in, in a very affordable manner. That was Tim Clark, president of Emirates. Uh, Masood Derhali, our business editor, is in the studio. Uh, Masood, you spoke to Tim Clark, and he was pretty candid there about the challenges affecting the whole sector. Uh, what stood out most uh, for you from what he was saying? Uh, well, t- Tim has always been very frank about um, the changing landscape and, and, and what's going on in the uh, aviation industry. I think, um, for me, the... The, what's very interesting is the market difference between today as opposed to 10 years ago when oil was very uh, high. You know, you were reaching about $147 a barrel. There was a spending spree. Um, the buzzwords were double-decker, A380, super jumbo, wide-body planes. And you had business class seats that were wide enough to fit two people. Whereas today, the landscape is, is quite, quite different. Um, in many ways, in many respects, it's an end of an era. It's the end of the super jumbo 747 and the A380 um, with, with, with an, a pivot towards fuel efficiency um, and getting maximum output from a, from a different kind of a fleet, which is um, single aisle planes. Uh, such as the 737 MAX. Um, that's, that's the aircraft that Norwegian Air Shuttle is correct, using yes. to fly transatlantic routes. Correct. Right? Um, and then you also have other, other planes that are, um, that are already in, in use and operations by, by various carriers like the 787 um, and the 777X, which is going to eventually basically replace Boeing 747. So, you know... Things have changed, um, and they're going to continue to change um, as as airlines basically alter their business models in line with uh, market conditions. And the the big news was that uh, Fly Dubai and Emirates, uh, obviously they're owned by the investment corporation of Dubai as their major major shareholder, but um, they, they decided they're going to work more closely together. Fly Dubai traditionally has been the, the budget carrier, if you like, flying more regional destinations and sort of secondary airports, while Emirates has been the luxury uh, you know, flag bearer uh, for, for Dubai and the wider UAE. But it makes a lot of sense for them to work together. It could 
uh, pave the way for a proper consolidation at some point? It could, um, but I think it's also early days um, to talk really about one cannibalizing the other. Um, I think the, the reason that Emirates has done this is, A, they operate out of one single hub, uh, Dubai International. Eventually, they will both move to, to Maktoum International. Um, but it makes sense because, A, Emirates doesn't fly to everywhere that Fly Dubai does, and uh, neither does Fly Dubai. Uh, so they can feed passengers into each other's networks. That's one. Two, if you think about it, when you look at Emirates compared to other big players, it's not part of any one world alliance. It's not part of any, you know. Yeah, it's been big marked by this sort of organic growth. Ex right? Exactly. And so, uh, and it's not interested in acquiring other, other entities or taking stakes. You know, at one point it had an experience with Sri Lankan. Uh, that came to an end. Uh, and so, this synergy, if, if you want to use that word, with, with Fly Dubai makes sense from, from various angles. Um, I mean, it reminds me of, of sort of Europe where, uh, you know, British Airways struggled a lot against the budget carriers. There's a lot of competition. And then they ended up forming their own budget airline. I think it was called Go. Um, to, to take some of that market. So I wonder if, you know, for Emirates and Fly Dubai, they're seeing that overall the pie isn't growing as fast as it could have been doing it the last few years. So by working more closely together, perhaps they can both grow their market share stronger together. True, but also what, what, what can happen is it can allow one to concentrate more on, on a market that makes sense for it and, and for the other to shift gears. So for instance, Look at Saudi Arabia. At some point, Emirates actually had the A380 in play going to Jeddah, right? Uh, f Saudi is a big market for fly to buy. So eventually, you, what you might see in the future, and this is not, I'm not saying it's going to happen, but what you could potentially see is that fly Dubai ups uh, its, its frequency of flights to, to the kingdom, um, and maybe Emirates uh, takes a takes another look at at other markets where it can deploy its aircraft. Um, at the end of the day, um, both operators needs to look at their bottom line and their profitability and what makes sense for them. I mean, I guess technology comes into it. The newer planes can fly further, more efficiently, um, and so you can deploy sort of these cheaper aircraft, if you like faster and, and to different destinations, similar to what we're talking about with Norwegian Air Shuttle, changing the transatlantic business model. Um, Emirates doesn't like to stand still. Okay, it's proven itself with that A380 hub model, but it's the fact that it wants to change, it wants to pivot, that it recognizes the realities is, is pretty good, given that many successful airlines, Singapore Airlines, other carriers that had been successful are now struggling. It's a good sign that Emirates are finding an innovative way, innovative way to move forward. I mean, if, if there's one thing that you can say about, about Emirates, it's that they, they constantly are evolving. They're constantly um, revisiting their operations and their business model. Um, I think, you know, if you look at Qantas, for instance, you know, they're going to be, uh, um, you know, what, what they have between Perth and London using the 787 and the configuration they have. You know, you're looking at, what, 17 plus hours, um, you know, Emirates is looking at that. Um, so you may, you know, Emirates is already flying nonstop flights to Brazil. Um, so, you know, 
you could very well see that, you know, they're going to take some of the planes, their existing planes, and reconfigure them, refit them. Uh, you know, I remember in the early days, the A380, there was a lot of talk, is it going to be an all-economy configuration? So um, these are interesting uh, days, and I think um, they, they will continue to, 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 to change. Masoud Derhali, the Nationals Business Editor, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Road freight is critical to trade flow, but it has seemingly so far been immune to the disruptive wave that has engulfed most traditional methods of transport. This may be about to change, mainly due to the efforts from within the industry itself. Uh, Chris Nelson, our assistant business editor, can explain about the potential revolution in the way goods go from the warehouse to the shop floor. Chris, hi. Hi. What's this development about? Well, uh, the big buzzword in uh, logistics industry uh, at the moment, and road haulage in particular, is uh, called platooning. And it is causing a lot of excitement worldwide. Um, as Abbas uh, El Daba, the chief executive, buys Agility, uh, one of the world's biggest companies uh, in, in the sector, uh, says um, in the article Thursday, everybody is, is looking at it and seeing how they can adopt it uh, specifically for trucking. And what's platooning exactly? Well, uh, the way platooning works is by electronically, by digitally, um, connecting multiple trucks in a formation. Uh, the lead vehicle is in charge. It effectively acts as the brain. Uh, and all the following trucks that are linked to it accelerate and brake um, and turn in sync with it. Um, they can leave or join any platoon when required or, or form their own if necessary. Are these self-driving trucks? At the moment, no, they're not. That's the, uh, that's the ultimate goal, is that they will be entirely autonomous. Um, presently, uh, the situation is where you have Scania in particular is developing a system where uh, the trucks can uh, connect or, or couple digitally uh, and the drivers then behind the lead driver uh, are leave the truck to drive itself so they can rest or they can uh, do whatever is necessary uh, with that time down. What that means is that, for instance, if you have um, a, a platoon of, of three trucks uh, digitally linked, the lead, and say you have to go from northern Finland to, to southern Sweden, um, the lead truck can drive for eight hours. It can then become the rear truck. Now, the drivers in the, the two trucks behind have been resting, so they one of those takes over. They can drive continuously for another eight hours while the first driver rests. Therefore, effectively, that uh, convoy of trucks doesn't stop. Um, thereby obviously getting getting to uh, the destination much quicker. And it's it, very topical at the moment, the Tour de France is on, and they always talk about sort of aerodynamics of the first cyclist in a peloton having to cycle harder than those behind. That's, is there also a fuel efficiency? That's in, precisely in why the industry is so, uh, is so excited. Um, according to Agility's research, uh, platooning could save the industry in this country alone in excess of $5 billion a year. Um, the reason is that it, it, it reduces fuel burn to such an extent because the trucks can travel so much closer together. Um, currently, uh, a three-truck a three truck convoy takes up about 150 meters of road space. Trucks platooning, because they react instantaneously to, to uh, the drive truck, um, take up about 70 meters. Um, now, because they're so close, the drag is drastically reduced, and it's drag that causes fuel burn to um, be excessive. Um, now, now I know why uh, drivers 
end up so close to you on the highway. Absolutely. They're trying to reduce drag, is it? <laughs> they're saving saving petrol. I see. Okay, yeah. thank yeah. you for that, okay. other drivers. But as you were saying, so it's it's fuel efficient. Yeah. Um, potentially, it allows um, convoys to get there faster. Yeah. Uh, and in particular, in the UAE, they have uh, dedicated truck roads. Mm-hmm. So I assume this is where where these might be used. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the one of the major players involved is Bosch, the German automotive pro uh, uh, company. And um, it particularly points out that uh, Dubai, uh, as it announced last year, um, has an objective to reach uh, autonomous uh, traffic, 25% autonomous traffic by 2030. Now, truck platooning, Bosch says, is specifically um, uh, suitable for uh, for, Abu da- for the UAE, um, particularly uh, the freight road between uh, Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the freight corridor between um, Jebel Ali Free Zone, Dubai World Central and Dubai International Airport because, as Bosch says, they're primarily geared for freight anyway. Um, in fact, uh, although Mr. Eldawa says Agility is looking to uh, to do piloting uh, for some of these um, programs here, um, he does point out, and this is a standard problem with, with this kind of technology across transport, um, it can't really become a reality until uh, the infrastructure and the regulations necessary are in place. And despite Dubai's can-do attitude, uh, that's that's a huge undertaking for anybody. Chris Nelson, Assistant Business Editor at The National, thank you. Thanks very much. I'm Mustafa Al-Rawi, Assistant Editor-in-Chief at The National. Thank you for being with us. Remember, you can read, watch, and listen to these and other stories on www.thenational.ae. Thank you all for listening. Join us again next week.